listening to this week's sermon from King's Community Church. For more information about our church, including meeting time and location, visit kingscommunity.ch. church. If you have a Bible or a smart device, I encourage you to turn in or turn on your Bible uh, to Acts chapter 4 this morning. That's, that's where we're going to continue our story through Acts as we talk about the church being a movement, not a meeting. While you're turning there, I want to remind you that this morning is a family Sunday, so our elementary school kids are in the service with us, and that's on purpose, because we want kids at King's Community Church to love God and love the church, and there's no way that's going to happen if they don't have exposure and experience with it. So we're glad the kids are here. And I want to point out also that that I'm sure if you're like me, some of you had conversations with your kids before this service started that, that made statements like, when we go in here, you're there to listen, not to talk. And because I don't want to break those rules that you've set, uh, I'm going to ask a question. And kids, I want you to be involved, but I don't want you to break the rules, so I don't want you to talk. I'm going to need you to yell. <laughs> From as far back as I can remember, I have always wanted superpowers. Has anyone else wanted superpowers? Adults, you can participate too. I know you, dads are like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, what, what superpowers have you wanted? I've always wanted things like, like super strength or the ability to fly or just to do powerful things. I want you to yell to me. What are some of the superpowers you've wanted throughout life? Flying, yes. Invisibility, that's dangerous. Keep an eye on that one. Speed, that's right. All sorts of good superpowers. Distractions, that's my son. I know that 100%. He's good at it. Now listen, listen, what if I told you that God has actually given us a special superpower to glow in the dark? God actually gives us the power to glow in the dark, and that's a very important superpower to God. One of the biggest ideas of the Bible addresses this issue of darkness and light. If you think about it, all the way at the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, God creates everything out of nothing. And there's darkness and chaos, but God separates light from darkness. And then throughout the rest of the Bible, we see the theme of darkness. And it's used to describe pain and suffering and injustice and hurt and lostness. Darkness is scary. And if you've ever been in the dark, you understand that. On the other hand, we see the theme of light throughout the Bible. Light always comes from belief and hope and trust in God. Light is associated with truth and salvation. And Jesus himself told his followers, I am the light of the world. So in the midst of darkness, we have light, which we experience safety through. And then we get to the end of the story of the Bible in Revelation And God tells us when he creates this forever home for all of his people to be gathered in his perfect presence for all of eternity, there will be no sun or moon in God's eternal kingdom. God's glory is going to illuminate it. And the centerpiece is going to be the lamb who is Jesus that's going to light everything up for all of us for all of eternity. Light and darkness is an important theme in the Bible. 
And while we're headed in a beautiful direction, if we're followers of Jesus, we have the hope of living in the light for all of eternity. There's much to celebrate, but we still live in a world with a lot of darkness. And God has called his church, his followers, to be a light in the darkness. He's given us a mission to join him in bringing light into this world because he's not finished with it yet. At the beginning of the book of Acts in chapter one, Jesus tells his followers that he's going to send the Holy Spirit, which is going to bring them a special power. It's actually the power of God to make a difference in the world for Jesus. We're talking today about glowing in the dark. And when you walked in, some friendly faces gave you some glow sticks as reminders that we, the people of God, were called to glow in the dark. When I say we're called to glow in the dark, I want you to know that I mean we exist to show people the light of the world who is Jesus himself. What does it look like for the church to glow in the dark throughout history? We're studying this tremendous book of the Bible called Acts. And if you remember, it's called Acts because it's the work of the Holy Spirit acting through faithful people throughout history to bring glory to God. In the book of Acts, we see God's people being a part of signs and wonders and miracles. Even just the past few weeks, we've been talking about this man who's been miraculously healed. And in the midst of all those beautiful things that are demonstrated to show us God's glory, Jesus' followers are speaking the truth about who he is and what he's done through the cross and resurrection. And thousands and thousands of people are trusting him and following him. That's how we see them glowing in the dark. Not long after that in history, still in the time of the Roman Empire, the empire that, that had Jesus executed on a terrible cross because that's what they thought would bring the most shame to people, they would practice things that weren't godly in the Roman Empire. One of them should break our hearts. Whenever there was an unwanted baby that was born into the world, that baby might be unwanted because they were born with a disability and they were going to be a drain on a family and society. Or maybe they were born and they didn't know who the father was and because males were the primary providers, that, that child was going to be a difficulty for the family. Or sometimes an unwanted baby was just a girl because men were highly valued in society and women weren't. A lot of times, if there was an unwanted baby that was going to be a drain on the family, they would take the baby outside the gates of the city and leave it there to die of something called exposure, which is essentially the idea that a baby can't take care of itself and it will eventually die naturally. That was happening pretty frequently in the Roman Empire. And the church ran to rescue children, to bring them into their families, not because they were wealthy, not because it was easy, not because babies were cute, but they believed babies were born in the image of God and God died to save people. So they were going to go out of their way to save these children that couldn't help themselves. So the church was lighting up the darkness, glowing in the dark by saving helpless people because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Later on in history, there was a time called the plague. There were these vicious, violent diseases that were spreading virally. It was, it was awful. When it would pop up in an area, the plague, uh, people would get so sick that entire communities would flee to get away from it for fear that they would contract the plague and go through a tremendous amount of suffering before they themselves would die. So people would leave areas where the plague was popping up. And the church equipped with the Holy Spirit, decided while everyone's running out, they're going to run in to bring hope and healing. 
and they provided medical attention and the gospel, the church ran into the place where the world was running out of. This week, I had the opportunity to have coffee with a, a friend from New Zealand who works for an organization that only works among the most impoverished people in society. We're talking about people who live on $2 a day or less of total expenses. They work in different parts of Asia, South America, Africa, but they look for people who are suffering. They find a person of peace in that community and they try to resource that person to bring light into the darkness. And I got to hear these outstanding stories of people of faith living on mission with God in some of the most dangerous parts of the world, among some of the most unlikely people in the world to bring light in the darkness. Even in our community, we've got organizations like Chosen and New Braunfels Angels and the SJRC Texas that are looking at the foster and orphan crisis that our, our communities and our world are faced with. A lot of these organizations are led by Christians who see a need. And they say, we're not just going to live in a world where that need exists. We're going to do something about it. So they're binding together in a family coalition whose goal is to provide more than enough resources to try to bring hope and healing to kids who have been abandoned or taken from their homes. That's what it looks like to light up the darkness in our society. Showing and sharing the gospel. When the world runs from darkness, church, we are called to run into it. And we are not afraid of the dark when we follow the light of life. Glowing in the dark is very important to God because there is lots of darkness in this world. There is injustice, there is oppression, there is hurt, there is pain, there is suffering. Some of it we can explain, but a lot of it we can't. But in the midst of that, God has brought his light into this world. And we are to be people that light up the darkness. And the light is the way that the world will know Jesus. The book of Acts, like I said before, is called Acts because it's about how God's people act when the Holy Spirit is filling them with power and helping them to do amazing things. And Acts chapter four, where we're gonna read today, helps us understand how we access this power from God in order that we can glow in the dark, just like God's people have throughout history, okay? In doing that, in reading the second half of Acts chapter four, we're gonna ask three questions. If you're a note taker, you're gonna write these down because it's gonna drive you crazy if you don't. Okay, three questions that Acts 4 helps us ask and answer. What is the Bible? What is prayer? And how do the Bible and prayer lead us to glow in the dark? Because that's the ultimate goal. We wanna know how this applies to our lives in order that we can be people that bring light into the world because our savior brought light into the world. What is the Bible? What is prayer? And how do Bible, the Bible and prayer lead us to glow in the dark? Let me begin uh, with Acts chapter 4, verse 23, continuing the story that we've been reading the last few weeks. After they were released, that's Peter and John, the followers of Jesus, they went to their own people, which would eventually be known as the church, and they reported everything the chief priests and elders had said to them, which was essentially, you better stop talking to people about Jesus. They went back and reported that to the other followers of Jesus. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, 
both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Things are getting harder for this young church, not easier. And how do they respond? They run to their heavenly father. They run back to the Bible and to Jesus. How do we know that's what they're running to first, the Bible? Look at verse 24 and you see God's character. When they cry out to God in prayer, they say words like this, Master, you're the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. How do they know that? Because that's what they've believed through the Bible, through the book of Genesis. They addressed God as a master. They're saying, you are our ultimate authority. And then they describe what's true of God that's not true of any other being in all of human history. They're talking to God about God, how they learned about him through the word, through the Bible. And then in verses 25 and 26, we see that they recognize God's voice and God's message. They go into quoting Psalm 22. As they're praying to God, they recite scripture back to God. Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord, against the Messiah. As they're talking to God, they reiterate what God's already taught them through the word. It's like a good parent who's teaching a child and says, tell me what you think you hurt, right? They're repeating God's words back to God. They recognize God's voice too. They recognize that Psalm 22 said, we understand that the Messiah is going to suffer. So it makes perfect sense to us that Jesus had to die on a cross at the hands of people. God is helping them make sense of his word. They see God's character in the Bible. They see God's voice in his message in the Bible. And then in verses 27 to 30, they talk to God about what's going on in their own lives. They talk to God about what's happening. They understand that suffering is going to be a part of the story of God's people if it was the story of the Savior himself. They understand the, the word of God and it transforms the way they think and talk to God. It's as though the early church is being bullied and they're running to their dad for help and guidance. And as they run to their dad for help and guidance, their dad reminds them of who he is and who they are. The Bible is the source of life and living. What else is the Bible? I think there's a lot of confusion about what the Bible is in our society. Even among Christians, it can be confusing at times. The Bible is not one of many holy books. As followers of Christ, we believe the Bible is the source of truth and life. The Bible is not just a collection of wise sayings and stories. That's what I believed it was before I was a Christian and before I ever read the Bible, that it was just a, a collection of wise sayings that could be helpful for life. That's not what the Bible's intention is. The Bible's also not a comprehensive history of the world. You know that? The Bible doesn't give us every detail about everything that's happened in the world. That's what the Bible's not. But the Bible is one story of God in relationship to his creation, especially his relationship with people. 
Because when God created everything, he set human beings apart and created us in his image. So the Bible is a story about God in relationship to his creation, but especially to people. The Bible's made up of two testaments that we talk about, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The early church that we're reading about in the book of Acts only had the Old Testament to glean from. They believed that as truth for life and living. But we see throughout the New Testament that they also talk a lot about the apostles' teaching influencing the way they live and the way they relate to God. Through the hard work of a lot of godly people throughout history, we understand the apostles' teaching as the New Testament. Did they say other things that weren't included in the Bible? Yes. But the Bible is relegated to these two testaments, old and new. If you ever want to hear more about why we believe that's reliable or valid, I would love to have that conversation with you. Here's a warning shot, though. You're going to have to read. You're going to have to read books and understand how the Bible came about. But the Bible is made up of two testaments. In those two testaments, there are 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And in the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, they say nothing more is going to be added before Christ returns. So we know that we have everything we need to understand God, life, and living. He has given us a sufficient amount through the Bible. Within those 66 books of the Bible, there are several genres or or writing styles, if you don't have a background in English. Uh, Of those writing styles, there's historical narrative. There's things that happened as true events with true people throughout all of history. There's poetry. There's wisdom literature. There's prophecy, God sharing predictions about what would happen in the future so that the world would know who he is and how he'll bring salvation. In the New Testament, we have four very special books of the Bible called Gospels, four accounts of the life and work of Jesus Christ. And we also have letters that people wrote to the church in order that we would understand how this organization, this movement is supposed to live. It's also important for us to note that the Bible was meant to be understood in context. It was originally written to a specific people in a specific place at a specific time in history. We always need to understand the author's intent of writing to the group that he wrote to. We make a mistake when we read the Bible and our first question is, what do I think this means for me? It's important that the first question we ask in the Bible is, what is God saying about himself and what is the author saying to this group of people at this time in history? In fact, When we study the Bible, when we read the Bible to connect with God, there are three questions that should happen in this order. What does it say? We don't get to determine what it says. We have to read off the pages. What does it say? The second question is what does it mean? And that is what did the author mean when he was writing to these people at this point in history? The third question, a very important question, so what does it mean for me today? We can't jump there too fast or else we'll lose the intent of the author. This brings up another good question. Who is the author of the Bible? Well, we see in verse 25 of Acts chapter four, they believe the Old Testament came through the power of the Holy Spirit through this notable King David as they recite Psalm two. So the author of the Bible is singular. God through the Holy Spirit is author. However, God used several human writers throughout history to pen the words that the Holy Spirit ordained or chose. The author of the Bible is God. However, there's many human writers. 
We need to note that the Bible is first and foremost about God, but it is a source for us. The Bible helps us understand who God is, the righteous creator of the universe, and no one is like him. The Bible helps us understand who we are. We are sinners. We are people who turned away from God's way, rebelling against him because we didn't believe he was trustworthy and loving. But the story doesn't end there. The Bible is also the source of our salvation. And in fact, every story of the Bible whispers the name of our Savior, Jesus. So when we read the Bible, we ask, what does this say about God? What does this say about us? What does it say about salvation? And lastly, what does that now mean for the way that I live? The whole story of the Bible is about Jesus, the Son of God, who said, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The reason I'm telling you all of this is because this book, this Bible, is a gift from God to teach us about who he is, who we are, the way we're saved, and the way we live. The reason I'm beating that drum so hard is because I want you to reflect on where do you turn to teach you how to live? Where do you turn to teach you the way to go about life and living? Where do you turn when life gets difficult? How do you answer that question honestly? Just a few years ago, Lifeway Research Group did a study of church-going Christians. This isn't about all Americans, this is about church-going Christians. And this is what they found out. 19% of church-going Christians, people who profess Christ and show up at church somewhat regularly, 19% of Christians read their Bible daily. 25% of church-going Christians say they read the Bible a few times a week. 40% of church-going Christians say they read the Bible once a month, rarely or never. I hope that's staggering for you. Can you imagine those numbers applied to other fields? Can you imagine executives who don't know the data on their business? Car mechanics who don't read the manuals about automobiles? Teachers who don't read textbooks? Doctors who don't consult medical literature? When it comes to the primary source of informing us about God, life, our identity, and our purpose, Christians think little of it. Is that saddening for you? It breaks my heart. Maybe we don't light up the darkness around us because the light is dim in us. It is no wonder that the culture around us isn't interested in God if our actions tell the world that we're not interested in God either. Of course they don't believe. We don't believe for, for it to change us. My goal for you is not to bring guilt but to encourage growth. You hear me? My goal is not to make you feel guilt. It's to encourage you in growth. When we talk about what it means to be a follower of Christ, when we admit that we are sinners in need of a savior and turn from our way of living toward Christ who did what we could never accomplish through the cross and resurrection, the Bible says we're born again. And we want to keep using that language. When we're born again, we're first infants in the faith. 
Through time, God willing, we will grow to be children and then young adults and then eventually parents in the faith. And where we are in our spiritual journey affects the way we relate to the Bible. Infants in the faith. How do infants read? Infants don't read. Infants are read too at best. But if you're an infant in the faith, you're probably not reading the Bible. Maybe you're, you're showing up to a place like this or, or listening to the podcast and things like that and people are reading the Bible for you, but you're not actively pursuing reading the Bible. You know, infants are adorable for a season. For a se- Amen? Amen. We have, uh, we have neighbor friends who just had their first baby. The husband of this couple is an Austin firefighter and we went to visit them a couple of days ago and, and they're just smitten with their precious little girl. But I, I look at my buddy and his eyes are like bulging out of his head a weekend and he's like, this is hard. We're sleep deprived. This is a dude that runs toward the burning buildings that everyone is running away from. And he says, infants are hard. We don't want them to stay infants forever. We want them to become children. It should be your desire, if you're an infant in the faith who's never read the word of God for yourself, to become a child in the faith. What do children do? I'm watching it with my six-year-old right now. He's learning to read, and it brings me so much joy as he puts words and then eventually phrases and then sentences together. God wants us to learn how to read his word in order that we can get to know him better. Children in the faith begin learning to read the Bible, but it doesn't end there either. God willing, over time, we become young adults in the faith. And when we read the Bible, we learn about God and we start to learn what does this mean for the way that I live and we start applying it to everyday life. Young adults in the faith start to make a difference in the world. But there's still one more step. We don't call it adults in the faith. We call it parents in the faith because parents in the faith reproduce. Parents in the faith are reading the Bible, applying it to life and helping others learn to read the Bible and apply it to their lives as well. Where would you plot yourself on that spectrum. Are you a follower of Christ? If you are, then the Bible says you've been born again. What's your relationship to the Bible like? Are you an infant having it read for you? Are you a child beginning to learn to read it yourself? Are you a young adult who's reading it and applying it? Or are you a parent in the faith that's not only reading it and applying it in your own life, but you're helping others do that as well? God wants all of us, no matter what your age or stage of life is, to mature toward parents in the faith. When we read, we are changed by the Bible. What is your next step? Bible study is a part of lighting up the darkness. In fact, in the book of Psalms, there's a beautiful, really long Psalm, Psalm 119, that's largely about what the word of God is useful for in our lives. Psalm 119, 105 says, God's word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word lights up the darkness. We should want it all around us. What's your next step in maturing in the faith through reading the Bible? God's people know about the Bible and it affects the way that they pray. When we continue looking at this passage in Acts chapter four, we get a good glimpse of what prayer is. What is prayer? I think they teach us in Acts chapter four that that prayer is talking to our father and asking for things. That's what prayer is, talking to our Heavenly Father and asking for things. When things get really hard for the church, 
Their first instinct is to talk to their father. And what's their prayer sound like? You read through verses 24 to 30, you hear them say who God is. They address their heavenly father. They say what God says. They repeat God's words back to him. They talk out what is happening in their everyday lives. They're being persecuted. And then they ask God to do something about it. Prayer is talking to God and asking for things. How do they talk to God? They remind themselves of who God is. They remind themselves of what God says. They talk to God about what they're seeing and they ask God to intervene. You know, the way we do worship services on Sunday mornings with all the different movements, all the different types of readings and prayers around the preaching of the word and the music is to demonstrate for us ways to practice praying throughout the week. We want to exercise it on Sunday so that we're prepared to do it Monday through Saturday. That's why we do church the way we do on Sunday mornings. Our prayers change when we know God through the Bible. A young faith will look at their circumstances and they'll talk to God and they'll say, God, will you change my circumstances? But listen to the faith of the church in Acts chapter four. When they explain to God the trials that they're going through, this is how they pray to God. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your arm and do signs and wonders and bring salvation. A young faith that doesn't interact with God through the Bible will often say, God, will you change my circumstances? That's not a bad prayer. You can pray that prayer honestly. God will either give you the answer to your prayer or he'll give you the grace to sustain you without it. But the more mature prayer is, God, will you use my circumstances to change me? Will you grow my boldness in spite of their threats? Will you grow my light in spite of the darkness that's surrounding me? That's a completely different way to pray. It reminds us that prayer isn't a tool to change God. It's an opportunity for God to change us. The young church in Acts doesn't ask God to change their circumstances because they know that God is using every detail about their lives to change them. To change them into what? To become more like Jesus. God loves us as we are. God saves us as we are. But God never leaves us as we are. He wants to transform us into Christ's likeness. And listen to what happens when the church trusts God's word and prays. In verse 31, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common with great power. What power? The power that they promised was gonna come when the Holy Spirit came. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and great grace was on all of them for there was not a needy person among them because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one that the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Do you see what happens when people believe the word of God and they pray for God to change them? Their lives were being refocused on God's glory and the good of others. 
I love that as they give practical examples of everyone doing this, they point out Joseph, who was known as Barnabas. It was, I, have a, I have a feeling it was a real surprise that he had changed that much. Even Barnabas is doing this. Do you see what happens when God's church glows in the dark? Glowing in the dark looks like relentless love, giving up your own desires for the benefit of others. Radical generosity. They're literally selling their homes and their possessions. That was not normal 2,000 years ago like it's not normal now. This is radical generosity. But thirdly, they also have a rejuvenated desire to share Jesus with others. Relentless love, radical generosity, a rejuvenated desire to share Jesus with others. They so believed that joy was found in Jesus that they could let go of their stuff. It was too good to keep themselves. They wanted to share it with others. Church, do you want to be a part of something like that? Well, you're afraid to shake your heads because it might mean you're the one giving, not receiving. You're the one selling your home instead of being blessed by those who sold their home. What are you giving up if you don't want to be a part of something like that? What are we giving up if we don't want a part of relentless love, radical generosity, boldness in proclaiming the gospel? How quickly would you give up your things if it meant others could know Christ? These are questions that we all wrestle with, myself included. But listen to what happened in Acts and how that was transforming society. And consider, they so believed that joy was found in Jesus, they could let go of their things. This reminds me of when our daughter was pretty young. Uh, it, was, it was one of the first times she had earned uh, money for doing a task and my wife and I coached her. We said, there's three things you can do with your money, and we, we want you to decide, but we want you to do all three of these things. We want you to give to the glory of God, and there's, here's ways you can do that. We want you to save for the future, and then we want you to spend with what's left. How are you going to divvy that up? And, and she stood there astounded as a young child, and she gave all the money to the glory of God. My, my wife and I were like, wait a second, you're going to want stuff. You better save some of this. You, you, you better spend some of this. But it didn't make any sense to her. If I could give it all to the glory of God, why wouldn't I give it all? I think to myself, God wants us to have a very mature faith when it comes to knowing him. But I think he wants us to have a very childlike trust when it comes to all the things he's given us. How will you steward all the things that God has given you for his glory? The more we engage with the Bible and we learn who God is and what he's done for us, the more we begin to allow our prayer lives to say, God, I don't need you to change my circumstances, I need you to change me. The more we glow in the dark, the more capacity we have to push back the darkness all around us. It takes faith. But the good news is, when we finally see our role in God's great story, we will start pushing back the darkness all around us in ways that we never imagined. 
In church, since Jesus, the one we're following, resurrected from the grave, we don't need to be afraid of darkness and pain and even death because we belong to the one who conquered sin and death. Darkness will fear you when you are glowing in the dark. Do you hear that? God's enemies aren't equal and opposite in power. God is the ruler over all creation. Darkness will fear you when you glow in the dark because you are glowing the light of life who is Jesus Christ. Where is God inviting you to light up the darkness? What is your next step? I I think we go back to the basics. Let's practice the things that help us call on the power to glow in the dark. The first one is simple Bible study. Earlier, I asked you to to plot where you are on that circle. Am I an infant? Am I a child? Am I a young adult? Am I a parent in the faith? What is your next step? If you're an infant, my invitation to you is to begin prioritizing reading the Bible once a day. You know, if, if you just prioritize a time of day for three minutes to read the Bible every day in a year, you've spent 18 hours reading the Bible. I did the math. You can check it out on your smartphones. You go from zero, maybe sporadic hours a year, to 18 hours a year invested in God's word, I, be, I believe you start to begin to glow in the dark. Prioritize reading the Bible. Pick, it, pick a time that you already do something, breakfast, lunch, dinner. Give three minutes a day. Become a child in the faith, learning to understand the word of God. If you've done that, but you've not really committed yourself to applying it to life, maybe you need to include the prayer of boldness God, will you change me as I read your word? Will you help me become the woman or the man that you long for me to be? Because I want to be that. Maybe you've been doing that, but you've never taught someone else how to read and understand the Bible. Maybe it's time that that you find someone in this room or, or one of your neighbors, maybe even for some of us, one of our kids, and we begin prioritizing Bible reading and day to day life, teaching others how to access that power to light up the darkness. We need to engage God's word if we're ever going to glow in the dark. Secondly, our prayer life has to transform. One of the the common questions I'm asked or or statements that are made to me is, can you help me learn how to pray? I I have trouble prioritizing it in my day-to-day life. We want to make it as easy for you as possible as a church. Remember, we say, if you give to King's Community Church, you're giving to the mission of the church. We bought the right book to help assist you in how to pray. It's called A Praying Life by a guy named Paul Miller. I've never known so many pastors and Christian leaders point to one resource to help them take a step in the faith of prayer. It's called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. The subtitle is Connecting with God in a Distracting World. Amen? You want that book? It's in the lobby. Go take a copy after this service is over. Write your name in it and begin reading it. One of the reasons it's such a powerful book is because it shows us the heart of prayer in the Bible because we're not going to learn to pray better if we don't understand the word of God better. If we want to light up the darkness, if we want to radiate the light of life, we need to go back to the basics. We need to prioritize God's word to change us, to remind us of who he is, who we are, and the message of salvation. We also need to pray for God to change us in order that we can do things that that are unimaginable apart from him. Jesus told his followers what they were going to be like. This is my prayer for us today as we close. In his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said to the people that were around him, you are the light of the world. 
A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand and gives it light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That's you. That's me. Together, that's us. Can we be a city on a hill, giving the light of life to a world who desperately needs it? That's my prayer. Heavenly Father, that you would pursue us with relentless love, with radical generosity, and give us a new desire to share and and show the world the good news of Jesus is breathtaking. God, thank you that, that while we were rebels, you sent your son to do what we could never accomplish on our own. Lord, we thank you for giving us the Bible to point us to the name of Jesus as our salvation. Would you help us to prioritize this great gift that you've given us in order that that we can know you and that we can be changed? God, our prayer as a church is not that you would change our circumstances, but that you would give us boldness to make the name of Jesus famous in everything we do, everywhere we go. Will you shake us up with that power? We pray for your Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen.